0: Do you ever find yourself singing nursery rhymes? You know, just little tiny little ditties every now and then. I bet you have sung this one sometime in the last two weeks. Rain, rain, go away, come again another day. The roots of that song go all the way back 1,200 years ago to ancient Greece. About 400 years after that, during the 1600s, there was a version that went like this, rain, rain, go to Spain, fair weather, come again. I haven't heard anybody sing that one lately. A couple hundred years later, during the 1800s, they got a little more personal with it. There was a version that went like this, rain, rain, go away, come again another day, little Arthur wants to play. Well, Dally, little Arthur got to play because I don't hear much about him anymore, so somehow he is no longer in the little song. You know, the nursery rhyme is not hard to understand, right? I mean, we understand the meaning. The meaning, if you're saying that or singing that, is, man, I sure wish it would stop raining. But, you know, you rarely hear people singing the opposite song, right? I mean, you rarely hear people singing, "Sun, Son, Go Away. That's, that's not one you hear all the time. Now, granted, you may have a, a really nice, kind dermatologist that might say something like that because you know, he's looking out for your skin, looking out for your health. You might hear somebody who is definitely not a morning person saying, sun, sun, go away, every now and then. That's possible. But for the most part, none of us sing, sun, sun, go away. We don't despise the sun. In fact, the sun is something we like. Why? Well, the sun can warm you up on a bone-cold, freezing day. And the sun can lighten up your mood after a dark, rainy storm. But beyond our mood, beyond our emotions, the sun is actually central to our daily existence. You see, the sun warms the earth in just the right way for all the seasons instead of burning us up in a millisecond. We manage all of our days and our calendar by how the earth is moving with the sun. Homes and businesses sometimes harness the energy of the sun for for power and to make them work. But possibly the purest and most important thing the sun does for us is what we know it for the most, and that is light. The sun gives us light. And it's not just the the natural daylight that we get every day from the sun, but the sun also lights up the moon at night. And the sun is also the, the central figure in the process known as photosynthesis. And photosynthesis, after it's all said and done, is the reason that you have oxygen right now to breathe. So the sun would be a strange thing to despise. The sun would be a strange thing to say, oh, just just go away, sun. No, the reality is we are alive because of the light of the sun. At least we're alive physically. Spiritually is another story. The sun that's up in our solar system cannot light the path for you to find spiritual life. That's Light has to come from somewhere else. And in fact, it does come from somewhere else. One thing. And here's what's strange: many people despise the one thing. They they want the one thing to go away. Even professing Christians, by the, the way we live sometimes, we are saying to this one spiritual necessity, just you know, go away. Come back another day. And what is this one thing? What is this spiritual necessity? Well, King David's going to help us see what it is. Psalm 19, verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Well, what are them? Well, in this psalm, David had been writing about the truth of God. He's been writing about the the word of God. And so the, the truth of God, the them here, is talking about the written words of God. And the written words of God are so incredible, David used all kind of ways to describe it. He's called it the law, the, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear. He's even called it the, the judgments of the Lord. He's used all kind of words to describe God's word, describe what we know as the Bible. But he goes beyond even just words. In the very last sentence, the one right before this, in verse 10, King David, the king of Israel, says that the Word of God is more desirable and more valuable than the finest of gold. Gold was was seen in primitive artifacts long before there was any true written language. And one of the wealthiest and most powerful men who ever lived, he says that the Word of God is more desirable, more valuable than the finest gold in the world. And then he says that the word of God is, is more desirable, it's more valuable, it's sweeter than the sweetest honey that you could possibly find. There were cave drawings of, of honey. The, the, the cave folks were drawing on their caves. Man, we love this honey. Long before there was any true written language. And so one of the wealthiest and most powerful men who ever lived, he says that the word of God is, is sweeter than the sweetest honey you could possibly find. For David, the Word of God would have been some of the 39 books that we know as the Old Testament. For us today, when we say the Word of God, from a a Protestant evangelical standpoint, we would say that, that the Word of God is the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. But what about people that say, "Ah, the Bible, it's a nice book. It's a a good ancient book. It has some very interesting stories. It's got some good moral principles. Or what about the opposite view? The Bible is this violent book, this contradicting book, this book that's out of date, that's culturally irrelevant. This book that's full of of homophobic and, and chauvinistic and archaic language. What about the folks that don't really believe that the Bible is God's word? Well, there are a lot of books out there, a lot of articles that you can find on the internet, both defending and challenging the authenticity and the truth of the Bible. Let me just give you one. It just came out a couple of months ago. It's a book by Greg Gilbert, and it's called Why Trust the Bible? If you're not a big reader, I've got good news for you. It's, it's not that big. It's probably, probably smaller than the bulletin you have in your hand in size, and it has 160 pages. So if you read it like three minutes a day, you, you might be finished in like a couple of weeks. So it's, it's an easy read. In the first section of the book, he's writing about how he and his wife are trying to help their five-year-old little girl learn a little bit about the difference in something that's real and something that's just a story. And he shares some of what they shared with her. So he tells his daughter. George Washington was the first president of the United States. That's real, Dad. Uncle Matt got a new job and moved to a different city. That's real, too. Batman chased down the Joker and threw him in jail. No, that's just a story, Dad. Elsa built an ice castle with her special power of freezing thin air. No, it's just a story. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, Dad, that's, that's just a story, too. And then he says this But then imagine I throw her a curveball. A man named Jesus was born to a virgin about 2,000 years ago, claimed to be God, did miracles like walking on water and raising people from the dead, was crucified on a Roman cross, and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he now reigns as king of the universe. How is she supposed to answer that one? See, we live in a world full of myth, full of fantasy, full of legend, full of fairy tales. We have science fiction. We have mystery fiction. We have romance fiction. We, we live in a fictional world. Even some non-fiction is actually fiction. I mean, we understand the science fiction part. We, we know all that's not real. But just in case you forgot, just because it's on your Facebook feed does not mean it's true. Okay? There's even some nonfiction that's actually not true in our world. And so in this world of fiction, in this world, as we politically have popularized, of misinformation, in this world where there's so much that's not true, let us be gracious, let us be kind, let us not be pushy, let us not be critical, let us not be angry at people who don't believe the Bible. But at the same time, let us not in any way hesitate from affirming that the Bible is real and that the Bible is true, that this is God's word. There are a number of different categories of of affirming the Bible, of affirming what what I will say is the the Protestant evangelical, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament as opposed to, to say, the the Catholic version of the Bible or the version that the Jehovah's Witnesses use. So we're affirming. We have all these categories to affirm this really is God's Word. Here's just a few of those categories. We look at the original manuscripts. We see the archaeological discoveries. There are eyewitness testimonies. There are intricately fulfilled prophecies, over 300 just about Jesus. There is literary examination, scrutiny by experts. There is ongoing worldwide influence and church-wide acceptance. And maybe perhaps the biggest one for us as believers is the Bible is still changing people's lives. There is something powerful about the Word of God. Whitney Cunningham wrote this. The Bible contains 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different writers, but it tells one big story of God's plan of salvation that culminated in Jesus Christ. And then he says this. You can't even pass a secret around a circle of 12 people and get the same message at the end. It's true, is it not? This book that we have, this truth that we have, it's it's unlike any other. Dr. Luke was writing about the early church, and he said this about the people of Berea. Man, I'd love that Luke would say this about the people of Berea. Oh, Avenue. This is what he said, Acts 17, 11. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were eager for God's word. See, the Bible is not afraid of examination. The Bible is not afraid of skeptics. The Bible is not afraid of doubters. I shared some thoughts last week, and, and they have captivated me all week long, and, and so I just want to share them again. I, I think they're, they're worthy for us to hear again. Dr. Holly Ordway from her book, Not God's Type. This is what she says. I had never in my life said a prayer, never been to a church service. Christmas meant presents and Easter meant chocolate bunnies, nothing more. At 31 years old, I was an atheist college professor, and I delighted in thinking of myself the myself that way. But then she started reading the Bible. She started looking through the New Testament. And this is what she says. I read through the gospel narratives again, trying to take in what they said. I had to admit that even apart from everything else I had learned, I recognized they were fact, not story. I'd been steeped in folklore and fantasy and legend and myth ever since I was a child, and I'd studied these literary genres as an adult. I knew their cadences, their flavor, their rhythm. None of these stylistic fingerprints appeared in the New Testament books that I was reading. See, what was happening was her heart was changing. She had an eagerness. Her eyes were eager to hear God's truth. The Holy Spirit was helping her see this wasn't just a book and it wasn't just a story. She goes on to say this, the Gospels had the ineffable texture of history with all the odd clarity of detail that comes when the author is recounting something so huge that even as he tells it, he doesn't see all the implications. That's that's how I preach. I mean, I just realized there's no possible way. I could could preach 50 sermons on this one verse and y'all have learned, I probably could pull that off at this point. But there is so much to be said. The story of the Bible is not just a story. It is huge. It is gigantic. It is incredible. It is astounding. And so I encourage you, read it, examine it, challenge it, test it, and pray that the Spirit will give you an eagerness to see God. Pray that the Spirit would help you to understand and enjoy the truth that is found here and that you might find and that I might find day after day after day exactly what David said, that God's Word is more valuable and more desirable than the finest gold or the sweetest honey. David takes it even beyond words and word pictures. He says here what? Moreover, by them your servant is warned. It says they're a warning. The word warn here means to teach. It means to shine. It's kind of similar to a check engine light in your car. You know, that check engine light comes on in your car and it's, it's letting you know there's, there's something wrong with your car. You might need to immediately pull over. Or you might need to get it to a mechanic as soon as possible. Or you might need to go home and, and get a code reader and hook it up to your car, figure out what's wrong, and then go YouTube, all the different ways that you might be able to fix it yourself. All those things are possible, but something's wrong. That warning light is on your dashboard to let you know there's a problem. The Bible's kind of like that. Of all the different things that the Bible does, one of the things that the Bible does is it shows us the nature of sin. It shows us the dangers of sin. It shows us the consequences of sin. It's a warning light. But you know, some people ignore the engine light in their car, right? They ignore it. They go, there's nothing really wrong with my car. Uh, those, those kind of lights, I mean, they malfunction all the time. I, it's just crying wolf at me. And then it's New Year's Eve, and it's after midnight. And you're way out at some friend's house on their farm. And y'all have had a big, huge bonfire. And you leave and you're on the way home and you've been ignoring the engine light. And all of a sudden your car dies on the side of the road. Out in the middle of the country and there's not a light in sight. You don't have any internet coverage. You can't YouTube and figure out a way to repair it out in the dark. And sometimes in that moment people go, This is so unfair. Why is this happening to me? It's happening to you because you ignored the engine light. You, you failed to see the warning. So you're out in the sticks, and there's nothing you can do. You know, the same thing happens to us spiritually. There's far too many Christians that, that we ignore the warning lights that God gives us. There's far too many Christians that, that sit in church on Sunday morning and, and their rhyme, at least in their mind and their heart, goes something like this. You know, truth, truth, just, just go away. Come again another day. I just, I just want to enjoy life, and I just want to play. And then something bad happens, and truth has been ignored. We've pushed truth off to the side. And something bad happens, and we find ourselves going, oh, God, why is, why is this happening? God, this is so unfair. I would imagine all of us have a family member or a friend that has ended up in a a really tough, awful, bad situation. And they saw the warning lights from God. They they heard the warning lights from God, but they just ignored them and, and just kept doing their own thing. I think we know this, but just in case we don't, every single person listening to this sermon is ignoring a warning light from God. How do I know that? Well, I know that for a few reasons. One, no one listening to the sermon is perfect. See, we, we can't remember everything from the Word of God that we've ever read or ever studied all the time and every single moment. And even the best of Christians cannot obey God perfectly. And so I say that we're ignoring warning lights as a, as a way to kind of hurt our feelings a little bit because I'm not that great a Christian, and neither are you. That's why I go to Holland Avenue. Man, the pastor is so encouraging. He never makes me feel like a loser, bad Christian. I promise I'm not trying to make you feel like a loser, bad Christian, but, but I do want us to take a really serious look in the mirror. Because the reality is God's word is the kind of book that helps us see that we are ignoring some of his warnings. Maybe this morning you're ignoring the warning light that says your way is not always the right way. And you need to back off of your spouse. You need to back off of your kids and your grandkids. You need to back off your your friends or your boss or your employee or your elected officials or your law enforcement officials or your pastor or your church member or the girl at the customer service place when you're trying to return a gift. You see God's way is the only right way. Don't don't miss that warning light. Or maybe today the warning light that you're ignoring is is what you do with what you have, what you do with your time, what you do with your energy, what you do with your thought life, what you do with your your money and your possessions. Maybe you need to think in a a wiser way about how you spend and and use the money that God allows you to have in a different way, to use your time in a different way. Maybe you need to to look at the ways that you're spending your time and your money and, and maybe you need to say, you know what, it's too focused on my leisure. It's too focused on my recreation. It's too focused on my vacation. It's too focused on me and my family. How much am I thinking about the gospel with my life? How much am I thinking about the gospel with my time? How much am I thinking about the gospel with my money and my possessions? Because, see, the word of God is the ultimate and only guide, the rule for for what we do with what we have and what God has allowed us to have. See, if we're not careful, we'll ignore a lot of warning lights, and what we'll do is we'll start keeping score. And what I mean by that is is we'll start focusing on the sins of other people. We'll start focusing on the mistakes of other people. We'll start focusing on the failings of other people, and the the times that they slip up, the times that they don't do the right thing. And before long, we're looking at our spouse, or we're looking at our kids. We're looking at our friends. We're looking at the mugshot on the news on TV, and we're saying, huh, told you so. You wouldn't listen to me. I told you so. But we forget that there literally is not a second of the day that God could not say to us in very clear language, I told you so. See, here's the thing. You really aren't that great a Christian, (laughs) and neither am I. But if you are a Christian, you have a great Savior, a great Savior, a great Savior who before you were even born, loved you and gave his life for you, a great Savior who has made a way for the curse of sin to no longer have a grip on you. A great Savior who is not sitting in heaven, looking down, waiting for you to mess up so that he can sneer at you and say, I told you so. No. No, it's, It's the opposite. See, every morning and all day when you're at school or at work or when you're being retired, when you lay your head down at night, you have a great Savior who is gently and firmly saying the same thing to you over and over and over again. If you love me, then keep my commandments. Even even the warnings of God are are full of love. They're overflowing with love. They're marked with love. A parent tells a child to do something, and the child says, why? Why? And parents, all of us, at least once in our life, have said what? Because I said so. Because I told you so. That's the only answer that you need. This is why the Word of God is more desirable than the finest of gold. This is why the Word of God is sweeter than the sweetest honey. Because, see, when the Bible gives us a warning, The Bible doesn't come with a warning. And when we're thinking, oh, the Bible is trying to steal my fun. The the word of God is, is trying to make me not enjoy life like I want to enjoy life. And when that warning comes and we look at God and we say, why, why do I have to do that? The child in the manger, the Savior on the cross, the resurrected Son of God does not look down from heaven and say, because I told you so. See, first and most, Jesus does not look down at us and say, because I told you so. No, first and most, he looks at us and he says, because I loved you so. This is the message of heaven constantly. You see, our motivation for heeding the word of God, our motivation for listening to the word of God it's not just because it's the authoritative, powerful commandment of the creator and the owner and the judge of the universe. But see, our motivation for heeding God's word, our motivation for listening to the warnings of God's word, is because the same creator, the same owner, the same judge, dearly loved the world, dearly prized the world, so much so, that he sent his one and only son to fully and completely and perfectly satisfy and pay the ransom for your sin. The word of God loves you. And so the word of God warns you. But is there any benefit to listening to the warnings? Is there any benefit to us obeying what Jesus commanded? David says this in the next part. In keeping them, there is great reward. David's not using hard words, is he? We all know what gold is, right? And we know that gold is very valuable. We all know what honey is, right? And we we know that honey is very sweet. We know what a warning is, right? We know it's something that can save our lives, that can help us. And we definitely know what a reward is, don't we? It's something that we will be excited to get, something that brings us joy and happiness. This week is the week of New Year's Eve. There will be people making New Year's resolutions all week long. They'll stop something or they'll start something, one way or the other. Can I just challenge and encourage us not to wait until New Year's Day? That today we would make a commitment to not have a thought life about God's Word that's only 10% or less of our life, but, but we would have a greater love for God's Word. That maybe a, a resolution this year would be that we would start reading and listening to and, and keeping God's Word in a, in a deeper and more joyful way. That maybe our, our resolution this year would be that, that we would make a commitment to love the Bible more than we love social media. To love the Bible more than the newspaper or magazines. To love the Bible more than a romance book or a fiction book or a mystery book or a fantasy book. To, to love the Bible more than TV and, and movies and video games. To love the Bible more than our hobbies. Why? Because none of those things are bad or evil. But none of those things can bring you the reward that the Word of God promises and guarantees. This is true. It's sobering. It's real. It's a little unsettling. But it's always good for us to remember. We are not promised tomorrow. We're really not. But in the instance that the time has not arrived for Jesus to come, and we make it to 2016, and we make it to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tomorrows beyond that, I want to challenge and encourage you with just three fireworks as we step into this new year. The first firework was set off more than 300 years ago by John Bunyan. He wrote, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. That still has a lot of punch 300 years later. The second firework was 125 years ago. Charles Spurgeon said this, If you never read a single book of romance, you will lose nothing. But if you do not read your Bibles, you will lose everything. That's still pretty clear. Still pretty, pretty honest. And then the last firework was just from five years ago. Jeff Thomas writes, So boys and girls and men and women who believe and do the ordinances of God become sure men and women in their choices and loves and relationships and careers and in their personal life and family life and church life. That's amazing. The word of God could accomplish all of that. And, and why do they do the ordinances of God, as he says? They do them because they believe. They don't believe in themselves. They believe in this one who came in a manger. They believe in this one who died on a cross. They believe in this one who rose from the dead. They believe in this one who is coming again. They believe in Jesus. And then Jeff writes this. Decades later, when they're dying, they are sure. Sure. And that has come to them through the Word of God. The Word of God tells us about Jesus Christ. And the word of God tells us that our faith in Jesus Christ is not a lie, but that the faith that we have in Jesus Christ comes with great reward. And that great reward is eternal life. But then today, it is the love, it is the care, it is the keeping of Jesus even for this day. You see, those truths... Do not go away. Those truths do not fade away. You can't even push them away. Because the truth about Jesus is sure forever.